In the late 1700s, there was a gathering of Baptist ministers in the United Kingdom. They were meeting to talk about church business, but then one young, newly ordained minister stood up to speak. Everybody knew this minister as a cobbler. He worked on shoes. And as you might expect, working on shoes didn't provide enough to put food on the table. You can think of a shoe repair person earning minimum wage. But even though it was difficult for him to put food on the table, he was able to pick up Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And also, he was able to pastor a church. But he also had the desire, the burning passion, to see people in other parts of the world reach with the gospel. And that's what prompted this particular minister to stand up, to say something, to encourage the Protestant church at that time, which had forgotten its mission, its calling, to reach the lost in the parts unknown. And who was this minister? Who was this shoe repair person? Who was this man that would stand up to challenge the status quo? His name is William Carey. And even as William Carey spoke, an older minister stood up. And he said this, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Now you've got to wonder, why did the Protestant church forget? Why was going overseas to a people who are lost uncomfortable? I wonder if it's because they thought the Christian life was spent reading your Bibles, going to church, offering up your prayers. Maybe it was about excelling in the workplace. Whatever you did, you had a steward for God. Or if they were students, to excel in their studies. I wonder if as they began to do these good things, they forgot that they were called to reach the lost, both at home and also abroad. And so this morning, I want to discuss the question what has God called us to do? What is our purpose as believers? What is our mission should we choose to expect it? What has God called us to do? To answer this particular question, we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 3, which was just read to you. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. If you're apps, please tap and swipe to Exodus chapter 3. In this particular text, we're going to see a story. And not only a story, we will also see a principle, an idea, and a principle that will then be applied. So first, what is the story? Well, the story is this, that God sends Moses on a mission. Now, you've got to think about Moses. He's been shepherding sheep for the last 40 years in the wilderness. I wonder if the passing of every year, he's tried to forget things of his past. Maybe he tried to forget the time when he killed an Egyptian who was harming a Hebrew. 
Maybe he tried to forget that this particular incident led him to be here in the Midianite wilderness watching sheep. Maybe he tried to forget the snap of a whip and the cry of a Hebrew slave. I mean, with the passing of 40 years, maybe those are memories he wanted to put in a place where he would never have to think about it again. And maybe he would die out here in this wilderness, never having accomplished much. After all, he was already 80. So I think that one day, as Moses was watching his sheep in the wilderness, and you know sheep have a voracious appetite, so they have to eat shrubs and whatever they can find in the wilderness. And as the sheep eat up the shrubs, you have to find new place for the sheep to go. And I wonder if that's what led Moses to bring his sheep to the the land near Horeb. Because after all, as a good shepherd, you had to provide for your sheep. Then maybe off in a distance, he sees something burning. Now for him, being out in the wilderness for 40 years, burning things happen a lot. After all, the wilderness does get quite hot, and things such as bushes burn up, and then they're gone. So this sight of fire doesn't quite bother him. So he turns back to his sheep. Maybe he starts counting them. One, two, three. After all, he didn't want to lose a sheep. But then as he finished counting up his sheep and making sure every single one was there, he looks up, and the bush is still burning. And it's a peculiar sight, because everyone knows that a fire that burns a bush will eventually stop burning. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, Moses, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning burning, yet it was not consumed. And so this probably prompts Moses to say, huh, what an odd sight. And as we all know, curiosity leads you to do strange things. So he decides to take a journey to go look at this bush that is not consumed. In verse 3 it says, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So as Moses draws near to this burning bush, It gets even more weird because he hears his name, Moses, Moses. And I'm sure that it must have bothered him that the bush was speaking. And Moses replies in verse 4, here I am. And the bush speaks again. The bush says, Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And so for those of us who require or ask permission or ask people to take their shoes off before entering their homes, we understand the importance of removing your shoes because you don't want your guests tracking in whatever dust or dirt or whatever other things into your house. And just as it is in the Near East, people remove their shoes before entering into temples or holy places. And so God, through the bush, 
asked Moses to remove his sandals. But it's also interesting because he says, do not come near. That there has to be some distance between God and Moses. And then the bush says this in verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Moses, as he hears this, must be thinking about, I remember there being a God of Abraham. There was a God who called Abraham out of the land of Ur and into the land of Canaan. The God who appeared to Jacob in a latter vision. Or the God who brought Joseph down to Egypt. They eventually led Jacob and his family down. I've only heard of this God in stories. After all, it's been 400 years since anyone heard from God. And now Moses was hearing that same God speak to him. And I'm sure it sent tingles up his spine. Because in the latter half of verse 6, it says, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And we see how God interrupted Moses' life at the age of 80 through a burning bush. But why did God call Moses? Why did God interrupt Moses' life as he was shepherding his sheep? It's because the suffering of Israel compelled God to act. In verse 7 of chapter 3, it says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard, have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. That God was not far off in those 400 years. God was not shut up in a room in a chamber where he could not hear the cries of Israel. Nor was he in a place where he did not see them. But he saw and he heard, and this prompted him to intervene. And it says here in verse 8, I have come down. That God is going to come down into time and earth once again to save his people and to bring them into this land flowing with milk and honey. Now for us, milk and honey doesn't sound very appealing because we can find it in stock at the local grocery store in great abundance. But if you think about it, in order to produce milk, you need to have animals, specifically goats and cattle. Now in order for goats and cattle they to produce milk, they had to have enough food to eat because happy cows produce milk. In order for cows to be happy, they need to be well-fed. And so that means this land that God was bringing Israel to would be so abundant that the goats, as well as the cattle, could eat as much as they want whenever they want and produce milk often. If you think about honey, bees need flora, they need trees and shrubs to be able to produce honey. They can't produce it in the wilderness, at least not in abundance. 
So this place will have so much greenery that the bees have no problem producing honey. And in some sense, it reminds us of the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, lush, green, productive. And this is where God promised to take Israel. So the suffering of Israel compels God to act. But it's interesting because God doesn't just show up and go march into Egypt. He actually calls a person. He calls Moses. And that he sends Moses as his messenger. And we see this calling in the following verses. In verse 9. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. That Moses is now called on this mission to go save Israel. And God promises to help Moses save Israel. First, it's by his presence. We see this in verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. We may be thinking to ourselves, so why is it important that God is with Moses? I mean, how much of a difference does the presence of someone make? Well, think back to your childhood as you are trying to sleep in your room and the dark makes you afraid. And so what do you do? You call one of your parents, maybe your dad, dad. I'm afraid of the dark. Can you stay with me? Now, it's not like dad can snap his fingers and make the darkness go away. Yes, he can flick on a switch, but then the darkness is still on outside. But yet, there's something comforting about someone with authority with you. Or maybe as you're walking through that dark alley in the city, and it makes you wonder who might be lurking around the corner, and then you catch a glimpse of a police officer nearby, and then your heart is much more at peace. Just the presence of knowing someone who has authority, being with you, empowers you, because you know that they'll be able to take care of business. And likewise, God's presence with Moses reaffirms him that nothing will happen to you because I am here. Not only that, God also promises to help Moses by his work. We see this in the last half of verse 12. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And that this is a sign that it wasn't by your work, Moses. It wasn't by your eloquence, your ability to speak well that delivered Israel. It was me. I will do this work through you. You will be the channel by which I will deliver Israel. And a sign to you that I've accomplished this work is when you come back to this mountain to worship me. And lastly, God promises to help Moses by his authority. And we see this in verse 14. And this is one of the key verses in the book of Exodus because Moses first asked the question, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God responds, God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. 
And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The reason why in verse 14, I is capitalized, A is capitalized, and M is capitalized is because this is the sovereign name of God. It comes from the Hebrew word to be, that he is all existent. It's like the New City Catechism, that he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, unchangeable in his power and perfection, wisdom, justice, and truth. And that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That he is a God who created all things and is set apart. And so notice the change of the message in verse 15. Before, it was the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now God has a new message for Moses. Not only is the God of your fathers going to save Israel out of Egypt, but the God who is over all creation is going to save them. Because notice the two words that were added in verse 15. The Lord. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. I'm not just the God of Israel. I'm the God of everyone. And I want you to make sure Israel knows that. And not only is he the God of all, he is the God of deliverance. And we see this in verse 16 through 17, where God sends Moses to gather the elders and to say this to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that it will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, that God promises to deliver them. And then the last message is this, that he is the God of judgment. And we see this in verse 18 to 22, where God will render judgment upon Israel for their oppression, or not on Israel, but on Egypt for their oppression. And we hear this. But I, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. This is in verse 18. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. And then in verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Now, it may be weird that Moses will go to Pharaoh and ask for a three-day retreat for Israel in the wilderness because God sent Moses to free Israel from Egypt. But we all know that some of us speak indirectly. And Moses is indirectly saying, yes, I may be asking for a three-day hiatus, but I'm actually asking for you to let us go. And we do this all the time. Because when you ask, can I have the remote? It means, can I actually change the channel? Right? Or when you ask, may I borrow a piece of paper? You don't expect to get the piece of paper back, especially after you write on it. And likewise, Moses speaks indirectly to Pharaoh asking, I may be asking for a three-day retreat, but what I'm actually asking is, 
you will let Israel go. And in this particular verse, in verse 19, it says this, as I've read before, that they will not be let go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Meaning that unless Moses comes with a huge military force behind him, Egypt will not let Israel go. And so God will bring judgment upon Egypt. In verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And not only that, that Israel will plunder Egypt. In verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for gold, silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So when the Israelites are about to go, the women will knock on the door of an Egyptian and say, hey, you know that beautiful new gown that you just purchased? May I have it? The Egyptian will say, sure, take it. Or maybe a knock on another door. The Israelite will ask the Egyptian, may I have a few pieces of silver? And the Egyptian will say, take it. Do whatever you need to do. Take whatever you need to take. Just leave. And in this way, Israel will plunder Egypt. And this will be the judgment of God upon this particular nation. Now we know that God sends Moses on this mission, but God also sends us on mission. And this is the principle, that God sends us as well on mission. And we notice that God oftentimes interrupts believers. I mean, he interrupted Old Testament saints all the time. Remember Gideon? He was threshing wheat in a wine press. And then this angel says, greetings, great and mighty warrior. And he interrupts Gideon. Or think about Amos, shepherd, tender of vines. And then God calls this person in the south to go to the north to preach a message. Or think about Jeremiah. Oh, I'm too young. And God says, no, I created you for this purpose. That God interrupts people in the Bible all the time to be his messengers. And God has interrupted us as well. That in that time and season, perhaps when there was great emptiness or void of life in us, that God had brought along a friend to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with us. And he interrupted our lives. I remember sharing with somebody the gospel and saying that if you place your faith in Christ, it's going to change everything. You're going to play by a different set of rules. You can't do what you want to do. You can't date whoever you want to date. Are you ready for that? Is that something you want to do? And for this person, he said yes. Because God interrupts us. And why? It's because love for rebels compels God to send help, to send messengers. That because God loved this world, that he sent his son, so that whoever believes in him might not perish. And the message that God sends with these messengers is that God is going to save for these Old Testament saints, Gideon rescued Israel from the Midianites. We think about Amos, who preached a message of repentance to the northern kingdom of Israel. Or even Jeremiah, who tried to preach a message of repentance to Judah in the south. And that God has also sent Christ, the perfect messenger, as well as message. 
because he died willingly in our place, he might deliver us from sin, from death, and bring us back to God and gain for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. And so if God sends us out as messengers, where is that commission? And many of you know it's found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20, where it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, or behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. So then the application for us, if that is the principle, that God also sends us as messengers into this world, to the workplace, to our classrooms, to our workout groups, to our hobbies, then we have to carry out God's message. That we have to be able to proclaim it, to speak it, to do something with it. And we proclaim God's message through our deeds. I mean, for those of you who work, imagine being in a team and your team member forgets to send you the latest results for one of your daily update meetings. And as you show the PowerPoint presentation, you realize he didn't send it in. And you know your boss is not very kindly to mistakes, and he berates you and takes it out on you. And now you're faced with a choice. Do you say, it wasn't my fault. It was my team member. He forgot to send in the results. Or will you say, you know, you're right. It's my fault. I should have double-checked this presentation. And then your coworker will ask, why did you do that? And then you have an opportunity to say, it's because someone forgave me. That's why I can take on whatever mistakes other people have made. And it's an opportunity for you to proclaim that message of forgiveness and also of grace. Or maybe when you line up to check out of that grocery store, you know that person behind you, you suspect is probably going through hard times. Five kids running around, baggy eyes, unkempt clothes. And you offer to buy his or her groceries. Not because of what you expect will happen, but because what the gospel has done to you that we proclaim God's message through our deeds, but also that we proclaim God's message through our words. Now, many of you know, as I said earlier in this service, there will not be lunch served today. So think about wherever you're going to lunch, if you're going out with your family, and as your wait staff brings out the food and says, is there anything else I can do for you? Maybe you and your family or your friends can say, actually, my friends and I are Christians. Can we pray for you? And then, whatever happens next, pray for them. And this is an opportunity to bring up spiritual conversations with them. Or for those of us who are a little bit more introverted, like myself, learn more about your coworkers and your classmates. Care about their lives, not just about the work that you have to do and the assignments that you have to turn in. Ask about their families their hobbies, their interests. And if something that comes up that is a challenge that they're going through in their life, offer to pray for them. But we also need to proclaim God's message through our commitment. That we need to be committed to proclaiming the gospel to others. 
And maybe that might be in, involve spending time with international students. And we have a ministry here at our church that will allow you to do that through English Buddy. And I'll have to tell you, meeting up with the English Buddy is not easy because I meet up with one. There are times when he cancels. There are times when he reschedules. There are times when he wants to talk about things that I don't particularly want to talk about. But I'm there. And we've had opportunities to have spiritual conversations as we talk about even having children because he and his wife want to have kids, but it's difficult. And for Josephine and myself, we have thought even possibly of adoption. And that has brought on opportunities to share the gospel with him, even though he may not be interested. We need to be committed to people. And an opportunity to do that is with international students. But also another opportunity to be committed to reaching the lost is to partner with missionaries. That when a missionary comes home to share about his or her experiences overseas and how the Lord is working, go. And perhaps the Lord will prompt you to partner with them financially to be able to support them in this work where they're able to reach people that we may not be able to reach. Another opportunity to actually be proclaiming God's message through commitment is actually think about going to community events. Maybe there might be a movie in the park. Go with your family. Get to know your neighbors. And maybe as you go to two or three movies, as your kids start to play around in the park, you're able to strike up a conversation and you find out that your neighbor plays tennis just like you do. And it becomes an opportunity for you to play tennis with him. And then after tennis, you might go out and grab breakfast or lunch. And then you're able to initiate another relationship where perhaps a gospel conversation can take place. Proclaiming God's message is not just works, deeds, and speech, but it requires commitment 